Good morning, Cornerstone. Will you pray with me this morning? Our Father and our God, we are grateful for another opportunity to gather together. yet in the land of the living. We thank you for the privilege to be called your sons and your daughters. Pray, Lord God, that even right now you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us this morning. We pray especially for all of those who are sick and shut in among us, that you would visit them with healing in your wings that you would cause them to gather together again with us in good health. God, you have been good to us. Your mercy is everlasting. Your truth endures throughout all generations. And we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all of the praise. Have your way in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things about theology that it took me a long time to recognize is that in the study of God there is a lot of contemplation, a lot of thinking, a lot of assessing and evaluating, a lot of argument, a lot of study. But there is not much action in theology proper. In theology, we ponder the word of God, we ponder the goodness of God, we ponder the character of God, but theology never calls us to make any decisions to change any of our actions. And so it's been so far in the book of Romans since chapter one as Paul has been unpacking for us and describing for us the salvation plan of God. As Paul has been informing us of our fate, of our illness, the illness of sin. But so far it's just been about thinking and coming to an understanding. But today in Romans chapter 12, Paul is about to turn the corner. And Paul is about to begin to explain to us what we ought to do in response to all that he has explained to us since Romans chapter 1. He starts off by saying, therefore. And in English, anytime you see the word therefore, you always have to ask what for. Paul is pointing back to something and normally when he says therefore, Paul would be pointing back to an argument that he just made. But in this case, Paul is referring back to all of the teachings he has explained so far in the book of Romans. Therefore, this represents the transition for Paul from theology and from the study of God's plan to the practical and moral implications. Therefore, or since God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son, therefore, or since God has gone to such great lengths to save us, 
Therefore, since this is the case, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I earnestly plead with you and I implore you. Paul is earnestly pleading with the Romans and with us today. Paul is desperately encouraging us to do our part. The first portion of Romans explains to us in great detail all that God has done to effect my deliverance. The first portion of the book of Romans is theological. It is the study of God, the study of what God has done for us. But these final chapters of Romans teaches us the practical, the moral, and the logical implications of God's salvation plan for our lives. Therefore, God has done great things for us. But as Jesus Christ teaches us in the book of Luke chapter 12, verse 48, to whom much has been given, much is required. To whom much has been given, much is required. In these final chapters of Romans then, Paul is going to teach us what God requires of each of us in light of all that God has done for us. We must not regard Paul's instruction here as mere advice. It's more than that. From chapters 1 through chapters 11, Paul has been very careful to ensure that his practical instruction is rested on a solid theological foundation. He has laid the foundation well. If God has done what he did for us, it is only reasonable that we should do what he says. In light of all that God has done for you, brothers and sisters, I earnestly implore you by the mercies of God. In response to God's mercies, not just his mercy, singular, but in response to God's mercies, as in plural, it is by the mercy of God that we've not been consumed, the Bible says. It is by the mercy of God that we've been given a second chance at newness of life. It is by the mercy of God that we've been saved. By the mercy of God that we've been called righteous even though we are not righteous. It is because of his mercies, Paul says, that I implore you. And my admonishment to you, Paul says, is not based on my personal preference or any societal norms. My admonition to you is not based on human philosophy or any social construction. I implore you to follow my instruction because God has been good to you. And this is the only proper response to the goodness of God. That you would present your bodies. That you would present your bodies. I have heard a lot of calls to salvation in my lifetime, and you probably have heard a lot of calls to salvation too. I've given quite a few calls to salvation in my lifetime. And I've heard preachers instruct unbelievers to present their hearts to God. Give your heart to Jesus. I've heard preachers, and I've said it myself, 
Give over your will. Turn over your will to God. Give your mind to him. Give your heart to him. But you know what I've never heard a preacher say? I have never, you think about this, I have never heard a preacher instruct unbelievers to give their bodies to Jesus. Have you? I've never heard that. Come to the altar and give your body to Jesus. I've never heard that before, except in this text. Have you? Anybody ever heard that as a call to salvation? If you sense that God is calling you today, I'm asking you to come forward and give him your body. I've never heard that before, and the question arises in my mind, why is that? Why have I never heard that kind of a call before? Why don't we call people to give their bodies to God? And it may have something to do with the way we've been taught. In Christianity, the body is viewed as the least and the lowest aspect of a person. In much of theology, the body is reduced to being nothing more than a shell in which my person happens to reside. The body is just a basket or a can, <laughs> a storage container and nothing more. The body is irrelevant and inconsequential or so we've been trained to believe. And we say this very often, that God is not so much concerned about what we do with our bodies, God is looking at our hearts. That's what we say. God only cares about how we believe. That God is most concerned with our interior lives and not with the shell that we call home. But as Paul teaches us here, the body is much more than just a shell. And he's going to say it very explicitly in just a moment, but for just a minute, let's just focus on the body. The body is more than an inconsequential shell. The body is ground zero. The body is ground zero. The body is the aspect of ourselves that holds all of the other aspects of ourselves together. Mind, body, soul, spirit. The body holds all of it together. The body is the rallying point. The body is the summation of all that I am. My body, your body, is the external expression of our internal lives. So that what we believe in our hearts, we express through our bodies. And not only this, but most importantly, the body is the aspect of ourselves that has been infiltrated and subdued by sin. Isn't that what Paul has been teaching us in the book of Romans? Especially in Romans chapter 7 verse 8, that no good thing dwells in our bodies. Paul goes on to complain about the sin in his body in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 7. And this is what he said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law. Where do you see this different law, Paul? I see a different law in the parts of my body. 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. The law, he says, which is located in my body parts, not in my mind, not in my heart. Sin is located in my body. The body is ground zero because sin is located, not first in my mind and not first in my heart. Sin is first located in my body. Then it spreads to my mind and it spreads to my heart. But the body remains the locus of all sin. Sin is attached to humanity through the body. Not only that, but it is our bodies that Jesus Christ came to heal. That's what salvation is. The healing not of the mind, the healing of the mind over time. But Jesus Christ specifically came to heal our bodies of the malady of sin. And this is what he says in Romans chapter eight, verse three, he says it quite clearly. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the body. He condemned sin in the body. That's amazing. He evicted sin from our bodies because Jesus Christ's focus and the focus of God's eternal plan of salvation is a plan to rescue our bodies. And the body is the aspect of ourselves that ties us to sin. So Paul says that being the case, present your bodies to God as a living and a holy Sacrifice, sacrifice, he says, metaphorically speaking, of course. Recalling the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Paul says that since, all that since all the things that God has done for us, it is only reasonable that we would become a sacrifice unto him. We are to be a sacrifice. But someone will say, Jesus Christ already made the sacrifice for us. Jesus paid it all, right? I'm not the sacrifice, Jesus is the sacrifice. So why would we be called to sacrifice if the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is enough? And the answer is this. Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice so that the sacrifice of our sin-laden bodies would be acceptable to God. It is, it is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross as the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. It is because of his sacrifice that my sacrifice is acceptable to God. The bodies, my body and your body, that we present to God is anything but holy. It's anything but acceptable. Yet because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, my sacrifice of my body to God is viewed by him as being holy. He has called me good, though I am not. 
I don't want you to miss Paul's point right here because it's very important that even though Jesus Christ has already been sacrificed on our behalf, each of us is still required to bring ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Through his sacrifice, Jesus Christ has opened the the, the door so that you and I can sacrifice our own bodies to God. Jesus Christ's acceptable sacrifice has made our sacrifice acceptable, but we still have to sacrifice ourselves to God. Don't miss that. Just as Jesus Christ voluntarily laid down his life, so you and I are required to lay down our lives as sheep for the slaughter to God. Does that surprise anyone? It shouldn't. Because Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus says it plainly. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said it. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. To deny myself means to relegate my thoughts, to relegate my hopes and my vision for my life to the periphery and to accept God's legitimate claim over my life. Deny myself. Deny myself the right to direct my own life. Then Jesus says, we have to take up our crosses. But you already took up the cross for me, Jesus. Why do I need to take up a cross? Because as Jesus just said, if you want to save your life, you must give it up. That's what Paul is saying. Present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice to be sacrificed, to be slain, metaphorically speaking again. Paul says that in light of all that God has done for us, the only proper response is that we would forfeit our lives for him. We must present our bodies to God as though we were holy sacrifices, as if we were acceptable to God. I just said it, you already know it, our bodies are not holy. And our bodies are not acceptable to God because our bodies are marred by sin. We are blemished and we are stained by sin. But we present our bodies to God by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The faith that believes that because Jesus Christ sacrificed his life for us, my sacrifice will be accepted, even though it is unacceptable. And for anyone, who would relegate the body to the trash heap and say that the body is inconsequential. For anyone who would conclude that the body is insignificant and that God doesn't care about the body, Paul states that the presentation of my sin-sick body to God is a spiritual service of worship. That's interesting, isn't it? The sacrifice of my physical body 
is a spiritual service. That's what he said. The sacrifice of my physical body is an act of worship. Jesus says in John chapter 4 verse 23 that those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit. And Paul says here that the presentation of my body to God is a spiritual service of worship. So could it be that the line between the natural and the spiritual is not as cut and dry as we might think? You know, we like to just section everything off and cordon everything off and categorize. This is the body, then you have the mind, then you have the soul, then you have the heart, then you have the spirit. Are those lines rather blurred? Is it as cut and dry as we would like to believe? Could it be that the line between what is natural and what is spiritual is far thinner than we've come to believe? That our physical existence is more spiritual than we can comprehend? I believe that is the case. Hebrews chapter four verse 12 says this, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul from spirit, of the joints from the marrow. This text, this text I just read is describing the precision of God's word, the discerning ability of the word of God to cut through all of the chaos and to find the dividing line between my soul and my spirit. This exactness of the word of God to discern, to delineate between the different aspects of one human person. The implication being this, that the various aspects that make up a human being are so interwoven, interwoven that only the all-seeing eyes of God is able to discern the differences between one aspect or another. Only the eyes of God is able to discern between the body and the mind, the soul and the body, the body and the spirit. Only God can see the differences. Only God can see where the mind ends and the soul begins. Only God can see where the soul ends and the heart begins. And only God can know where the body ends and the spirit begins. If there is any difference, if there is any daylight between the various aspects of your existence, your mind, your body, your soul, and your spirit, only God can see it. You cannot. I cannot. Therefore, as far as Paul is concerned, the body and the spirit are one. Stay with me for this. The body and the spirit are one. They cannot be dissected. Think, and, and when you think about it, it's common sense. The body can't be dissected from the spirit. The body cannot be dissected from the mind. The body cannot be disentangled from the spirit by anything but death. Only death separates my body from my spirit, my spirit from my body. So that for God's intents and purposes, brothers and sisters, the body of the believer is spiritual. And the presentation of our sin-sick bodies is an act of spiritual worship to God. 
I implore you by the mercies of God, brothers and sisters, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God. That's what Paul is instructing us here. But this admonition is far easier said than done. I think we can all attest to that. I think we can all admit today that the body, our bodies, do not intend to go gently into the night. Our bodies, your body and mine, has become acclimated and accustomed to the patterns and the systems of this fallen world. And we have conformed to the world that we have been born into. Isn't that right? It's not like we had a choice. We were born into this world. We didn't have a choice. Sin was in our bodies and we conformed to the world in which we were born. We had no choice. But now, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we do have a choice. And Paul exhorts us today to choose to disengage this world's prescription for our lives. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not allow yourself to be shaped by this world any longer. Do not accept this world's definitions, this world's philosophies. Do not be conformed to this world. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's all that's here. That is all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And Paul instructs us to no longer follow that pattern, to no longer allow ourselves to be driven by strong desires and thoughts and feelings of superiority. Paul admonishes us to opt out of the rat race toward vanity and self-indulgences and self-gratifications. Do not be conformed to this world. And this is what the world is all about. You know what the world is all about? Nothing really. A race to the bottom, fueled by illusions of the top. That's all the world really is, nothing really. A mirage of grandeur promising us the path to immortality while only driving us deeper and deeper into the bowels of uncontrollable and unrelenting despair. That's all that is in the world, nothing really. Do not be conformed to the nothingness of this world, but be transformed. Better put, allow yourself to be transformed. This is a passive command. Paul is not saying transform yourself. Paul is not saying change yourself. Paul is saying allow yourself to be transformed. Because you cannot transform yourself. Sin has too much power over you. Sin has too much power over your body. But you do have the right and you do have the power to reject the world. You do have the right and you do have the power to open yourself to the transforming power of God. 
Paul says that in light of all that God has done for you, the least you can do, the least you must do, is to open yourself to the potential of God's orchestrated and God's ordained transformation. To be open and to be willing to allowing the Holy Spirit to change you. I said a couple weeks ago, you come to Jesus as you are, but you do not stay the same. The Holy Spirit changes you if you allow him to. And how does God change you? How does God transform you? And where does this transformation begin? Since the body is ground zero, it would appear that the transformation should start with my body, transforming my, transforming my body from darkness to light, transforming my body from unholy to being holy. It should start with the body, right? No. Paul says our transformation begins with our minds. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present your body as a sacrifice. And then let God change your mind. The process of change begins in the mind. And as God changes your mind, your mind reprograms your body. Transformation begins with the heart, and as God transforms your heart, your heart transforms your body. Out of the abundance of the heart, a person speaks. <laughs> and so this transformation starts from the inside and works its way out, just as sin started from the outside and worked its way in. God does exactly the opposite. God starts from within and works himself out into your life. This transformation begins in the mind. But in order for this transformation of the mind to begin, the body has to be neutralized so that the mind can become free and open to change. If I take my car into the mechanic, and tell the mechanic that I need a new alternator for my car, and I'm sitting there with my car running, I check my alternator, I think I need a new alternator on my car. You know what he's gonna say first? Turn off the car. I'm not sticking my hand in the car while it's running. Turn off the car and I can change the alternator. The same concept applies here. God wants to change the mind, but first you have to turn off the body. You have to present your body as a living sacrifice and neutralize your body. Now once the body is neutralized, the mind is free. And the mind can now be changed. But as long as the body is alive, as long as I am still practicing and participating in sin, God can't change my mind. We have to neutralize the body. It's like when you go to the emergency room and you have a real bad illness and then they decide they have to induce you into a coma in order to keep you alive. You can't handle this if you stay awake and conscious. So you have to be put into this induced coma so they can operate on you, so you can have time to heal. That's what God has done. God has said, okay, Calvin, you've come to me for salvation. The first thing you need to do is present your body to me as a living sacrifice, and I'm going to induce a coma. I'm going to put you to sleep, your body. 
this body of sin. I'm going to neutralize it for now. And I'm going to keep your body neutralized until the day you wake up in glory. Your sinful body should never again see the light of day. Your sinful body should remain in the tomb until Jesus comes. Your sinful body is to be put on pause. Deny yourself, take up your cross, become a sacrifice, die to yourself. Hmm. Let God change your mind. And in the meantime, while you're in that induced coma, while you are asleep under the power of the Holy Spirit, while your sinful nature has been neutralized for the moment and your body still needs to walk around, Jesus Christ is going to step into your place and live his life through you in the meantime. The Holy Spirit is going to step into your body and live your life in the meantime. That's what's supposed to be happening with salvation. It's quite mystical, but quite simple. God says, come to me and sacrifice your life. Lay down your life. For the rest of your sojourn in this world, lay down your life. And let Jesus Christ live his life through you. And when we do this, Paul says that then we will be able to prove what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect, the perfect will of God. And why is that? Because when we have presented our bodies to God, when we have submitted to the decimation of our lives and of our bodies, and as we allow our minds to be renewed and transformed, our bodies become sanctified more and more as our mind is changed. And as Jesus Christ lives his life through us, we always do what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God because Jesus Christ only does what pleases the Father. I've read those verses for a whole lot of years. And if you're anything like me, there are certain words in that text that you just overlooked. I've always overlooked the fact that Paul told me to be a sacrifice. I've never paid a whole lot of attention to that. <laughs> that Paul says, I am supposed to be a sacrifice. <laughs> that I am supposed to voluntarily pick up my cross and go to the, go, pick up my cross and go to Calvary and allow myself to be consumed, to be annihilated. I've never really paid much attention. I've read this verse a lot of times. I've never paid much attention to that. That I am supposed to be a sacrifice, that you are supposed to be a sacrifice. What does that entail? What does that really entail? The giving up of everything that I hold dear. 
the giving up of all of my ambitions, of my hopes, and of my dreams to allow God to infuse me with his vision for my life. To deny my own self. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. He had options. Jesus didn't have to allow himself to be crucified. Jesus had options. He chose to die. And Paul the Apostle is saying to us, follow in his footsteps and choose to die to yourself. Become the sacrifice. Lay down your life. Let God renew your mind and give you newness of life. And on that day, when we cross over from this side to the next side, we'll see our bodies again. And we'll have a glorified body on the other side. A body that is holy. A body that does not contain sin. But that's then. For now, we must induce this coma. <laughs> Put our flesh to sleep and let Christ live his life through us. I hope that's clear. I hope that's clear. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you've been so good to us. The depth of the riches of your wisdom is beyond compare. Your plan of salvation is perfect. And the way that you've made for us is good. We thank you for all that we've done and today we pray that you would equip us and make us willing to do our part. to allow us to trust you enough to become the sacrifice, to lay down our lives in faith that we will live again. To disengage this world and this world's philosophies, to stop chasing the things that this world is chasing, to stop earnestly desiring the things of this world. To deny ourselves to lay down our lives for the cause of Jesus Christ our Lord, who has given his life for us. You have been faithful. Make us as faithful as you. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Make us over, make us new day after day. Morning after morning, new mercies we see. Lord, help us to take advantage and to make full use of all of the means of grace that you have provided through Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to see and to understand the value and the sacredness of our bodies to you. And give us hearts that desire to follow you passionately each and every day. And every morning that we awake, remind us that the first thing we need to do is to deny ourselves and lay down our lives and pursue you all the day long through the grace that only you can give. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
Amen.